Hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the latest little slice of the utter mayhem that was our recent all-day celebration of episode 500 of the Empire Podcast. Episode 500 itself was an epic three-and-a-half-hour live show featuring Team Empire, of course, but also Tom Holland, Rachel Segler, Brett Goldstein, Johnny Knoxville, Harris Dickinson, Joanna Hogg, and Kate Heron, our very own Magnificent Seven. That's been up on the regular podcast feed for a couple of weeks now. Last week, we brought you the one-hour spoiler special that we recorded live with Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg and a little cameo from Nick Frost via voice notes to mark the 15th anniversary of Hot Fuzz. And now we bring you the three-fact structure live featuring Ben Travis leading a sing-along James Dyer speaking faster than any human being in recorded history, and me slowly losing the will to live, which weirdly coincided with James Dyer speaking faster than any human being in recorded history. Anyway, we kept this one to just 20 minutes, and if you've never heard a three-fact structure before, well, don't worry, I explain the rules as we go. So here we go. 20-ish minutes of unadulterated mayhem and people talking very fast, and singing about poo enjoy wow that's the uh, the the timer hasn't started counting down they should probably start counting there we go right 20 minutes has begun we have 20 minutes to do this folks this is the three fact structure live this is the third time we've done it um we're boldly continuing on despite the fact that jason isaacs almost single-handedly stopped it in our last live show when he pointed out that it's actually a really really fucking stupid idea uh, which in fairness Helen and James have been telling me ever since. But anyway, if you don't know what the three-fact structure is, welcome to it. Uh, You're welcome to it, quite frankly. Uh, It is a show in which my three colleagues of such lethal cunning each bring an obscure, unusual, or arcane movie fact, and I give a point to the winner. The one who impresses me the most, ideally a fact I don't already know. Because i got a big film brain, you see. There's a lot of stuff up there already. I know it all. (laughs) I don't. I'm useless. Anyway... uh, So in order to do this, in order to have this live three-fact structure, the thing that Helen has called the worst thing to come out of the COVID-19 pandemic, (laughs) I need three utter mother factors. Will you please welcome Helen O'Hara, James Dyer, and Ben Travis! You know, I was wondering who would take the sofa. My I rightful think, place. I think it says a lot about, you know, psychologically what, what sort of seat you choose. You did introduce us in order, so we just sort of filed in accordingly. It's very good. It's very yeah. clever. Mm, subservient. I like it. Yeah. Uh, so, we have 18 and a half minutes left. So once James finishes his fact, we'll have half a minute left. Uh, so, how do we want to do this? Who wants to go first with a three... Fact, structure, fact. Helen, I'm looking sure. at you. Sure, fine, fine. I'm here under protest, <laughs> making that clear. Um, yeah, I was going to tell you about the wrong door raid. Do you know about this? Well, you might. Well, it doesn't matter. Anybody know about this? Okay, this is a cool thing. So in 1954, Joe DiMaggio and Marilyn Monroe filed for divorce, or rather Marilyn filed for divorce because he was jealous, he was possessive, he was violent, she had enough. 
And he later became absolutely convinced that she was having an affair with her vocal coach, who was a guy called Hal Schaefer. He got obsessed with this. He told his best mate, who was Frank Sinatra. And Frank uh -oh. Sinatra, yep. And Sinatra offered to take care of it, which he did by hiring detectives to follow Monroe everywhere she went, by bugging the phones of both Monroe and Schaefer, and by basically trying to get proof that they were having an affair, which actually DiMaggio hoped to use to convince Marilyn not to divorce him by threatening a scandal if she didn't stay with him. So anyway, one of the detectives follows Monroe one day to visit a friend of hers, an actress called Sheila Stewart, who was also a student of this vocal coach. He reported this to DiMaggio, and DiMaggio was like, that's it, they're going to her house, that's where they're hooking up, that's where it's happening, we gotta get in there. So DiMaggio, a little bit drunk, a lot het up, heads over to Sheila Stewart's house. He calls uh, Sinatra, a little bit of confusion as to the exact you know, order of events, but basically Sinatra turns up to this apartment building as well. And they're like, right, we're gonna go in, we're gonna catch them in flagrante, we are going to get the proof we need. We've got a camera here. We've got the de detectives. This is all coming up DiMaggio. Mm -hmm. um, so they basically <laughs> rush into one of the apartments in this complex. Can you guess what happened next? It was the wrong apartment. <laughs> it belonged to a 37-year-old secretary called Florence Cotts who had been in bed fast asleep, but very quickly woke up because three large men and one quite small one in the shape of Sinatra <laughs> burst into her room, cameras with the flashes going, <laughs> complete craziness, shouting, screaming, her screaming pretty quickly. And- um, Sinatra screaming in perfect harmony. In perfect night. harmony. I mean, it was, it was gorgeous. Oh, you know, he nearly, yeah. he nearly he won another crew. Grammy for it. It was incredible. Um, <laughs> meanwhile, across the courtyard, a half-dressed Marla Monroe and Hal Schaefer were like, is something going on outside? <laughs> Looked out the window, saw DiMaggio and Sinatra go into this house, legged it out the back door. Was DiMaggio dressed in full baseball regalia at this point, or? I, I like to think so. Yeah. yeah, I choose to think so. Um, so this didn't initially come out. So the, the police initially, you know, Florence Cotts reported it immediately. These guys ran back out as soon as they realized they were in the wrong house. But she reported it to the police, but she hadn't seen their faces because there were just, you know, cameras in her eyes. So she didn't know who had actually raided the house. The problem is lots of other people did. So it was the private detective who actually broke the story to, to Confidential, the Scandal magazine, which reported on it a couple of months later, fully double sourced and everything else. This actually led to a grand jury investigation, the point of which was less to bring charges against Sinatra and DiMaggio and more to try and figure out a way that Confidential magazine had in some way screwed up so they could put an end to that. So it became out. Sinatra initially went before the grand jury and lied his ass off <laughs> and said, well, yeah, it happened, but I was in the car the whole time. I was just telling DiMaggio not to go anywhere. Unfortunately, like three other witnesses, including Sheila Stewart, the owner of the right apartment, had seen him there. Uh, so it didn't quite work. But yeah, that was the wrong door raid. Became absolutely one of Confidential's biggest ever stories and was extremely, extremely embarrassing to one of the biggest musical stars and the biggest baseball stars of all time. Wow. Amazing. And at any point when Marilyn Monroe peeks through the, the window and has a little look out, do you think she said, where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio? Our nation turns its lonely eyes to you. I mean, that wouldn't make sense, that woo, second woo, bit, woo, but, woo. but yeah. <laughs> then, she, then she went, woo. -woo. 
Ooh. Yeah, and then Schaefer Ooh. corrected her on her pitchiness of the uh, as her vocal coach. So there you go. That's exactly it. Yeah. yeah. All right. That is a good, solid okay. fact. Where did you get that from? Um, I, I did maybe come across it when researching the book, but it wasn't in the book, as you know, as you know, because you've read it so many times. Amanda, is it, is so it in the book? So many times. No, see? My editor so can confirm. I, 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 I'm tearing up just thinking about your book. <laughs> So good. Uh, all right. Okay. I'm going to leave you till the last. So you have like a minute to, <laughs> to do it. Uh, ben. That means it's me. It does mean it when I say your name. Yeah, that. I have a presentation. <laughs> I. James, James at this point is going, hang on a second. I didn't know we could do a presentation. This is an option. <laughs> I did not come to fucking play. Congratulations to Ben! Whoa, 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 a second. Ben's track record in this game is not good. It is shaky. It is shaky. But is uh, it that these two people are the same? Because <laughs> even I know that that is not the case. There is more of a connection between them than you would expect. And that is the substance of my fact, which is all about the time that Winnie the Pooh <laughs> ran for president against Richard Nixon. Yes, this is a thing that happened. Okay. <laughs> Richard Nixon, Winnie the Pooh, both running for president. Before then, we're going to start in 1968. In, in slide two? Slide two. <laughs> Proceed to slide two. So we're in 1968. Uh, are there any nudes in here, Ben, first of all, before we... Hip, you know, hip, Not hooray. that I put in, but if you have the link and have slipped in a nude, that is not my fault. <laughs> so... <laughs> Disney is promoting the Winnie the Pooh shorts a very blustery day and decide, as you would, the best way to promote this is by running a campaign for Winnie the Pooh to run for president. Uh, so they took their Winnie the Pooh costume, which normally was Winnie the Pooh with a honeypot on his head because there had to be somewhere for the person's head to go inside the costume, and they put an Uncle Sam hat on him instead. So this was a relatively small affair. And when I say a relatively small affair, I mean 10,000 people attended at the Hollywood Bowl on the 14th of July, 1968. It was basically a little show. They all came out. They all did a bit of a dance. And that was it. And it went back to Disneyland for a couple of months. They like ran this short show at Disneyland. Uh, and that was it in 1968. Was one of them Boris Johnson? <laughs> there were many parties. <laughs> None of which were confirmed. He has, um, he has, is, he has a it, big old char of honey in his hand, so he, he can't remember how it got there. Is it true that poo will do is a, is a slogan that Trump considered? <laughs> Very possibly. He would have been a better president. Uh, so this was basically a trial run, and when it came to 1972, poo went big. <laughs> poo Whoa, went massive. Ben, do that again. That was good. Well, go back. Aggressive, go back. aggressive sliding. Get ready. In okay, 19... folks, folks. In 1972, Pooh went big. Yeah. <laughs> you are not going to win this, sunshine. <laughs> so in 1972, it was this whole massive campaign. Pooh for 72, Pooh for president, win with Winnie. They had all kinds of slogans. Nixon didn't stand a goddamn chance. This was the cabinet. <laughs> This is legit. So as Pooh for president, he picked Tigger as his press secretary. Eeyore was the campaign manager. It was a low energy campaign. This is genuinely true. 
Piglet was picked for vice president. It was between Piglet and Owl. Owl, they thought, was going to get it because he was appealing to both left wing and right wing. That's not a me terrible joke. That's a terrible Disney joke. That's a hoot. But... (laughs) There was corruption because, obviously, Pooh's best friend got it in the end, vice president. This was the manifesto, which I think we can all agree is pretty special. Two tricycles in every garage. (laughs) Free candy on holidays and two Saturdays a week. Nick Assembly and editor of Empire, if you are watching this, two Saturdays a week, think about it. <laughs> this was the tour, so it started at the Disneyland Railroad. They went to Union Station in LA, and this is the thing, in 72, they did a whole cross-country tour. They went to Kansas City, they went to Chicago. Chicago? All the way. Oh. Forfeit. Chicago. Forfeit. Chicago. Chicago, that is a made-up place where Winnie the Pooh rules forever. Who knows? They went all the way to Washington. Mr. Pooh went to Washington. Then weirdly like went to Seattle on the other side of the country. Then back to LA. It was a whole big thing. Basically, people did actually vote for Winnie the Pooh. They don't know exactly how many people did, but there were records that when Nixon did, of course, sadly, win the election, people legitimately did write down Winnie the Pooh on their ballots, possibly in protest, possibly just because they thought he was a good candidate and wanted two Saturdays a week. And that didn't deter Winnie the Pooh because he ran again in 1976 and this time he had a goddamn theme tune. And yes, this will involve some audience participation. So this was his song. You could buy this seven inch vinyl in Sears. It was like a collaboration with Sears. And we're gonna listen to this song and I want you all to sing along to this very catchy chorus. And we have the words at the bottom. And please, please sing. Please, because it will mean that hopefully I might win this for once in my life. Ben, I don't think you need to worry about that. (laughs) Here we go. I want stony silence. He's going to win. I'm proud to nominate a bear who's been a friend to me. This is Sterling Holloway, original voice, Winnie the Pooh. And so right now, without more words or Sounds like it could be on a Guardian soundtrack, to be honest. I give you our next president, the yeah, Honorable everybody. Winnie the Pooh. Pooh for president, I vote for Winnie the Pooh. Pooh for president, who's right for you? There's more verses than If I'm elected, I make a promise to all you girls and boys. I'll do away with taxes. There's a lot of two minutes of this. A bit of honey. I won't play the whole thing, but he said he'd do away with taxes. And each of you will have a snack. We've got one more round of the chorus, and then I can see All of those things are my facts. Wow. That's, <laughs> well, good luck, James. That's kind of amazing. So they, they had a chance to vote for Pooh, but instead they went for a right shit. Pretty much. Very good. Speaking of right shit, <clears throat> six minutes, Jimbo, what do you got? What do you got for us? <laughs> <laughs> Michael J. Fox's middle name is Andrew. 
He is Michael A. Fox. Well, is he a friend of Winnie the Pooh? Of course, that is not my fan, because my fan, of course, takes us back to revolutionary France and the guillotine. Of course, Lady Guillotine. Does anyone know how long they continue to use the guillotine? I'm going to tell you, obviously. Yes, that's right. (laughs) They were executing people via guillotine until 1977, which means they murdered people with a guillotine until the release of Star Wars. And that is the film I'm going to talk to you about today. Right up until the release of Star Wars. Right up until the release of Star Wars. He's going to cut your head off. So, so, oh, so, well. I don't know if anyone's been on YouTube and you've seen the kind of unlooped early footage of Star Wars where Dave Prowse is voicing Darth Vader and it's all very much, you're a part of the Rebel Alliance and a traitor, take her away! <laughs> it's brilliant, honestly, I suggest you check it out. But that's not what I'm here to talk to you about. It's that James L. Jones was not George Lucas's first choice to be the voice of Darth Vader. It was actually Orson Welles. He'd planned to have Orson Welles come in and do it, but then he thought, Orson Welles is quite recognisable. We probably don't want to use him. So they brought in a theatrical actor, James L. Jones, and got he to... James L. Jones, sorry, and got him to reel off the dialogue instead. And if we're going to talk about reels, we should probably talk about The Crawl. Now, The Crawl was not done with CGI. The Crawl was actually done with a six-foot piece of black paper, and they had a uh, yellow type on it, and the camera kind of zoomed over it. Sort of zoomed over it. Uh, and you can't talk about The Crawl without talking about Brian De Palma, because Brian De Palma, a mate of George Lucas, they had joint casting sessions for Carrie and Star Wars at the same time, but Brian De Palma first saw an early cut of Star Wars, and he was like, George, mate, what the fuck is all this shit about? I don't know what's going on. You start in the middle of the film, you need a prologue. So George went off and he wrote six paragraphs of impenetrable text. Jason Isaacs was right. (laughs) And he showed it to Brian De Palma, and Brian De Palma read it. He said, George, mate, what the fuck is all this about? So he took it off him and he rewrote The Crawl, and that's The Crawl that we know and love, instead of George Lucas's nonsense. And speaking of nonsense, if you've ever read the first draft of Star Wars, he only mentions the Force twice, twice. But in the second draft, he mentions it a lot more than that, and he introduces something called the Bogan. Now, the Bogan was his term for the dark side of the Force, and ask any screenwriter, they'll tell you, you never, ever, ever go full Bogan. But... Back then, there were so many things that were different. So Luke Skywalker wasn't even Luke Starkiller. He was actually, and this is absolutely true, he was called Justin Valor in the second in the second draft. Justin the Jedi. Of course, he wasn't Justin the Jedi because the Jedi weren't the Jedi. The Jedi were called the Dianoga. And that was before the Dianoga became the little eyeball thing that lives in the trash compactor along with the, what is it? The cryogenic booster construction, whatever it is that's on Mando's fucking spaceship. Anyway, so lots and lots of different things at that point in the show. So C-3PO back then was the guy who blew up the Death Star, not Luke Skywalker. And C-3PO, if you look at the concept art, was originally a girl. Ralph McQuarrie envisaged that as a female robot. He also changed Darth Vader because George Lucas thought Darth Vader should have been a human in a cloth mask, a bit like Baron Zemo. But Garapan Corey was like, mate, that's fucking stupid. He's just come from outer space. He can need a respirator. He's got a sword. He looks like a samurai. So that's why we get Darth Vader. And also, he's like Michael Bay. So he shot Darth Vader from above. So he looked really tall. And this is why George ultimately cast someone of Dave Prowse's stature. But so many things could have been different about the casting because Freddy Krueger could have been the person that Carrie Fisher was flirting with in Empire Strikes Back because Robert Englund, of course, auditioned for the role of Han Solo. But he fucked it up. And then he went home and he moaned to his flatmate. It was a young actor called Mark Hamill and he said mate you know what you'd be quite good for the second male lead and speaking of the male leads Alec Guinness was in this fucking film Alec Guinness and he was only in it of course because he really liked American Graffiti and they gave him a fuck ton of money but but he refused to do any press for the film and they said well we'll give you a little bit less money we'll give you a percentage of the profits which kept him in blue milk and brown dressing gowns for quite a while to come but that's not the only you have two minutes to say none of these things is my fact 
Fox made another mistake because they gave George Lucas the rights to A, the sequels, and B, the merchandising, which seemed slightly worthless, but actually made him a billionaire. But it's okay because George gave something back because the 20th Century Fox fanfare had kind of fallen out of use. They weren't really using it, but George wanted it at the beginning of his film. So he demanded that they resurrect it, and he also provided John Williams to re-record it and rearrange it, and that is the one that we hear at the beginning of Star Wars. But none of those things are my facts. Because my fact for you today is actually a very, very simple one, and it is this, that when George Lucas had finished Star Wars, he showed it to the suits of 20th Century Fox, and they had one major misgiving about the film, and it was this. Chewbacca is butt-ass fucking naked all the way through that film. And they were like, this is not good. Can we put him in Bermuda shorts or something? And George was like, no. And George put out this fire with a very simple statement. He simply said to them, it's okay that he's naked because Chewie doesn't have a penis. <laughs> and the suits... Well, like, fine. Okay, yeah, that makes absolute sense. That was absolute sense. So, so my fact for you today, ladies and gentlemen, is that much like Ghostbusters' Walter Peck, the mighty Chewbacca has no dick. <laughs> Thank you. Uh. <laughs> oh, chewy dick. Right. Um, okay. Right, we have 33 seconds left. Uh, Okie dokie. Uh, thank you, everybody, for coming. Uh, I have a fact. Michael A. Fox changed his name to Michael J. Fox, and he took the name, he took the letter J from the actor Michael J. Pollard. I win the three fact structure! Amazing! I also all knew right. that. <laughs> Fuck. Um, all right, so very, very quickly Helen's fact was good. DiMaggio, Sinatra, Monroe, all sorts of. Fucking and shagans. Uh James's fact, I don't know what it was. It was something about a penis. Uh, ben is the winner of the three five structure. Ben Travis! Boo for president. Boo for winning the boo. Was it? Boo for president. Boo is right for you, which is hilarious. Oh, God. They're all loving it. Look, they all want to sing it all night long. But sadly, we must get to the next show as part of the episode 500 all-day celebration. So please say goodbye temporarily to Helen O'Hara, James Dyer, and Ben Travis, everybody! And that was the live three-fact structure. And you know what, folks? The three-fact structure has been much maligned since I introduced it to the podcast, pretty much entirely by Helen and James, frankly because it means they have to do some actual work for once instead of just turning up and winging it. But finally, after over a year, the show may have clicked into gear with this Raced Against the Clock format. So we may do more of these in the live setting. Let me know what you think about that idea on Twitter. I'm at Chris Hewitt. Anyway, I'm off to see what can be salvaged of the Great Big Empire pod quiz that is fit for human consumption. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye.